You're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hi, folks, and welcome to the show. This is Richard Zink, and you're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. It's where the p-values are always less than 0.05. In this episode, episode 71, it features a conversation on p-values and their use in medical product development. I spoke with Lissa Lavange, J. Jack Lee, and Steve Ruberg about the ASA statement on p-values and the recent paper entitled Inference and Decision-Making for 21st Century Drug Development and Approval. And this was one of the articles featured in the American Statistician earlier this year. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And as a reminder for these discussions, please note that people are sharing their personal opinions, so please don't overinterpret their comments as representing the groups or organizations with which they participate. Now let's start the show. So hi folks, our topic today is p-values and their role in medical product development. I'm talking with Lisa Lavange, Professor, Associate Chair, and Director of the Collaborative Studies Coordinating Center at UNC Chapel Hill, J. Jack Lee, Professor of Biostatistics at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Associate Vice President of Quantitative Sciences at MD Anderson, and Steve Ruberg, President at Analytics Thinking. Good afternoon, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this, Richard. Now, glad to have you all. And Lisa, welcome back to the podcast. You were in episode 50 early in 2018 when you had recently started your role as ASA president. Uh, what have you been up to since that time? Thank you, Richard. Um, I, I did enjoy being on episode 50 of the podcast, and I'm happy to be back with my esteemed colleagues, Steve and Jack. This is a topic I think a lot of people will be interested in today. Uh, since we last talked, um, I had just at the, at the beginning of 2018, uh, left my position as Director of Biostatistics in the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at FDA and returned to my alma mater, UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, I'm on the faculty. I'm a professor in biostatistics, and I'm also the associate chair for the department. And I have a couple of roles there, um, uh, kind of new roles. One is to start a new Master's of Public Health program with a concentration in public health data science, which is exciting. We have our first cohort of students uh, just this week. They're attending attended orientation on Friday and start classes tomorrow. And I'm uh, working on that program. And then I'm also working on a, developing a regulatory science curriculum um, that we hope to launch a course, uh, the first course in the spring of 2020. So uh, that's on the academic side. I also, as you mentioned, direct the Collaborative Studies Coordinating Center. That's the oldest continuously funded NIH coordinating center founded in 1971, and I uh, worked uh, in this role prior to going to FDA, uh, so it's fun to be back. I'm um, PI or co-PI of two big study networks, one in HIV and AIDS research in adolescents funded by NICHD and one in severe asthma uh, investigation of novel therapies funded by NHLBI. 
So um, wearing several hats, this is my last quarter, or I guess um, last uh, half of the year to be on the ASA board as past president. I was president in 2018. In 2019, it's my third term on the ASA board. I'm past president this year, and I'm doing a couple of things. One that's a lot of fun is to watch the rollout of a couple of the initiatives that I launched in 2018 uh, under the uh, title of the Leadership Institute at ASA. So that's been exciting. And um, I'm also working with the board in the follow-up to the P-value statement and special edition uh, American Statistician special issue that we're going to talk about today and um, some other initiatives, including our new policy on conduct to avoid um, harassment that came into play this year. And we've got a new committee looking at data science initiatives for ASA as well. So still active on ASA. Um, I'll roll off the board at the end of this year and have to find something else to do. Thanks. Well, it sounds like you're uh, quite busy. Um, <laughs> Well, thanks for all you do for the ASA and uh, UNC. And Jack and Steve, uh, let's get to a little know a little bit about you. How did you first become interested in statistics? Uh, Jack, why don't we start with you? Okay. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for the opportunity to join my esteemed colleague uh, in this uh, uh, podcast. Um, so regarding how I entered into statistics, I took an unconventional path to statistics. Um, I was first trained as a dentist in Taiwan while I was attending the uh, National Taiwan University. I became interested in research. I know that statistics is an essential and very useful tool for research, but I didn't have enough training. So while I was in my internship year, um, I applied a biostatistics master program in the U.S. Actually, I was rejected by seven, uh, cited that I did not have enough background, which was true, but only UCLA gave me the opportunity. So I came and I received my master in biostatistics, uh, worked at UCLA uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center for a year, and decided I really like statistics better than practicing dentistry. So I went on to uh, enroll in the PhD program and received my PhD in biostatistics from UCL in 89, worked for two years there as an adjunct assistant professor, and then moved to uh, University of Texas and the Anderson Cancer in 1991. The rest is history. Very good, and uh, I think uh, you're uh, the first dentist I've talked to uh, that became a statistician. So, um, welcome. It's uh, it's it's interesting to hear how everybody uh, sort of moves along in their career and, and may switch from uh, one discipline to statistics. So, glad to hear um, that you uh, found statistics through dentistry. Um, Steve, yeah, it's a fascinating. This is a fascinating feel. I really enjoy that every day. Great, great. And Steve, how did you uh, get interested in statistics? Well, uh, first let me say again to you, Richard, thanks for putting this together, and I'm thrilled to be on the same discussion with uh, Liz LaVange and Jack Lee. Um, honored to be here. Um, Let's see, I always liked mathematics and got an undergraduate degree in mathematics. Went to Miami of Ohio to get a master's degree in mathematics, but then I switched to statistics um, 
as I took some statistics courses there and I realized it was more applied and involved more problem solving that I felt like was relevant and could make a difference in society and just seemed to be a real practical use of uh, my mathematical interests and quantitative interests. And so I switched and got a, ended up getting a master's in statistics from Miami and then got a PhD from the University of Cincinnati in biostatistics. Um, after school, I spent a year at the GE Aircraft Engine Group working with engineers on basically uh, lifetime uh, survival analysis of engines and engine parts. Um, but, but I was only there for a year, and I joined in Cincinnati, Ohio, Merrill Pharmaceuticals in 1981 and uh, decided I liked the biological and medical applications more than engineering. And I can only say, wow, what a difference that's made in my life. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed Nearly four, a nearly four-decade career in the pharma industry. Um, very proud of contributions to drug development um, and helping patients live healthier, longer lives, et cetera. And uh, I retired from Eli Lilly at the end of 2017 uh, as a distinguished research fellow there in advanced analytics. Um, and then I started my own consulting company early in 2018. It's just me uh, doing my own thing. Um, and uh, I guess I would say, uh, to sum up the latter part of my career, the trajectory that I've been on uh, has been spent kind of challenging some of the traditional orthodoxy about statistical inference and clinical trials and things like that, um, questioning p-values and intent to treat and um, supporting or trying to advance Bayesian approaches and adaptive designs and things like that. So, so I'm looking forward to this conversation as well, and thanks again, Richard, for pulling this together. Sure, happy to. So, in in terms of your your current role, uh, most of the research work or, or, or your day to day work at your new company is involved um, in adaptive designs and Bayesian methodologies. Is that fair to say? So, so I would say uh, I'm a part time consultant. I don't do it full time. I'm I'm trying to be a bit retired. Um, but I would say I'm focused more on strategic planning and the broad use of analytics in pharma. Mm -hmm. uh, I do get involved in some technical consulting with individual trials or treatments or drugs or whatever for some companies. But uh, I, I, I think I did a pretty good job of broadening uh, advanced analytics across the entire enterprise of Lilly, not just clinical trials, but into business and manufacturing and all sorts of areas. And I've consulted with some companies on some of those approaches. I also continue to teach and lecture on some of these new ideas or give talks about Bayesian approaches or estimates, just to name a couple. And I'm still writing some research papers and enjoying trying to stay abreast of what's going on there. So that's kind of what I'm up to. Great. And, and Jack, uh, with your role at uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. In addition to research collaboration and uh, some teaching as a professor, um, I also oversee quantitative sciences area in clinical research. And being an MD Anderson, you know, it's really a great place uh, to do both uh, methodology research and collaboratory research. Um, MD Anderson is probably the largest cancer center in the world. Uh, we see about 45,000 new patients a year, and uh, over 10,000 of them enroll in active you know, clinical trials, that, uh, which is 
on the uh, in the magnitude of about a thousand you know, active trials at any given time. So statistics is very much needed in many aspects of clinical research. And so I'm really happy that uh, as a statistician, you know, we can be an integral part of uh, the clinical research and uh, at the end, you know, with the goal of uh, benefiting patients. So um, uh, I think that, that as statisticians, we, we really can contribute in many aspects uh, in our career and in our uh, function. Great, and thanks for uh, summarizing your work at MD Anderson. I had no idea how many uh, patients that you enrolled, um, that MD Anderson enrolled into clinical trials each year. That's that's pretty astounding. Yeah, I'll just say, Jack, I knew MD Anderson was a big place and the place, so to speak, for cancer research, but I, those numbers are quite uh, quite astounding. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. And just to add a little bit, we have about 1,700 faculty members, um, and uh, the total number of employees is about 21,000 strong, and uh, two-thirds are clinicians and one-third are basic scientists, uh, but we work together. And that illustrates that uh, nowadays we really need to, uh, you know, do teamwork and team science to move the field forward. Oh, that's amazing. You're all co-authors for a manuscript, Inference and Decision-Making uh, for 21st Century Drug Development and Approval. And this was a manuscript released in the American Statistician early this year to further the discussion on the ASA statement on p-values. And before we get to this article, I'd like to, to briefly mention the, the main points of the ASA statement on p-values uh, that was released in early 2016. So most importantly, the statement indicated that p-values can indicate how incompatible the data are with a specified statistical model. The p-values do not measure the probability that the study hypothesis is true or that the data were produced by random chance alone. That scientific conclusions and business or policy decisions should not be based solely on whether a p-value passes a threshold. Uh, proper inference requires full reporting and transparency. A p-value or statistical significance does not measure the size of an effect or the importance of a result. And finally, by itself, a p-value does not provide a good measure of evidence regarding a model or hypothesis. So given this, uh, all of these uh, statements, and that this was released in early 2016, why do you think the ASA released this statement, and, and do you think that this statement was long overdue? So this has been a really important initiative for the ASA. Um, we, it the ASA uh, is the largest uh, organization of statisticians in the world with um, under 20,000, about 18 or 19,000 members. And we do a lot of things for our members, uh, promoting the profession and offering professional development opportunities and networking, uh, publishing journals, magazines. Um, having chapters and sections of interest groups. We, we just do so much. Um, what we haven't had a history of doing is making statements or coming in on the side of one statistical method or another. Um, we advocate very strongly for um, the jobs of statisticians, the kind of work we do. Um, we do lots of advocacy, but we don't get into the, we don't get into the, the mix in terms of weighing on in favor of this method or that method. 
what happened uh, to change that with this p-value statement is we had a journal basically declare that p-values wouldn't be published anymore. It was a psychology journal that you just mentioned, Richard, and um, that that seemed serious enough that we needed to to take action. So a panel was convened that had um, really terrific uh, minds and statistics. A statement was developed. It was published in 2016. There were so many opinions and strong voices on this um, panel. They came to consensus on the statement, and then it, when it was published, almost every member of the panel wrote a commentary, you know, about other subtleties of the p-value problem, as it was seen. Uh, and and it was it was really, you know, something that that ASA felt like they just could not stay silent on, uh, that things had more or less come to a head, and we had to. We had to do something. Um, so the statement was out there. It got a lot of clamor. And in October of 2017, a symposium on statistical inference was organized. Um, the attendance had to be capped. They wanted to keep the group to be a small enough group so that interaction and dialogue could happen with the talks. And the talks were very carefully selected. Steve Ruberg had submitted a, 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 an, a, an abstract for a talk for us. And we presented the talk and got some terrific feedback at the conference. And then uh, some of the talks at the conference were invited to submit a manuscript to the special issue of the American Statistician, which was published in February of this year. If you haven't looked at that special issue, I would encourage you to do so. There's also a really nice uh, introduction to the issue by the three editors. And all three of the editors talk about how hard it was to select the papers to be published and how many different viewpoints they presented, but the bottom line was that the p-value statement focused on misinterpretation or incorrect use of p-values. The special issue of the American Statistician was meant to highlight uh, papers or to highlight methods in those papers uh, that could propose the right way to interpret p-values or even alternatives to p-values, including Bayesian statistics, which was the topic of our paper. I think it was unusual for ASA to enter this uh, this spray this of, of public discussion about p-values that was prompted by the journal uh, saying they wouldn't publish p-values. And by the way, a second journal has come along and done the same. But I think that we really had no choice, and I'm frankly glad uh, that the ASA has done what it's done. I think it's gotten a lot of dialogue going. A lot of the medical journals that you saw, the, I think the New England Journal just recently came out with a statement by its statistical editors uh, talking about how they were responding and encouraging people to uh, present on uh, point estimates and measures of uncertainty and not just p-values or, or possibly in place of p-values. There's been a lot of reaction to the, to the whole uh, statement itself in 2016 and then the follow-on conference in 2017 and special issue of the American Statistician in early 2019. Um, and I think it was timely. So that's a, a little bit of history and more uh, of my opinion, I guess. Jack and Steve, do you have any comments? So I agree with Lisa that uh, um, the ASA statement of p-value and uh, uh, on 2016, in 2016 and uh, uh, the conference in 2017 and the special issue this year are all timely. We know that uh, p-value has been much overused and misused. So I think that uh, I'm glad that that ASA uh, took these actions uh, to discuss the use of p-value and what are the alternatives. 
And at the end, I think the p-value is uh, only one measure of statistical inference, and uh, this helps us to uh, really um, look at the whole field and how do we uh, do statistical inference more properly. So I think you know, I'm happy that uh, in the past three years that uh, statisticians start to have this serious discussion about the use of p-values and the use and misuse of p-values. Yeah, a couple of thoughts for my end uh, to, to go along with what uh, Lisa and Jack have said is I like the statement a lot. In particular, I think uh, items B and F stand out to me. B, the second statement was p-values do not measure the probability that the study hypothesis is true or the hypothesis that the data were produced by random chance alone. And uh, F, the uh, sixth, sixth statement says, uh, by itself, a p-value does not provide a good measure of evidence regarding a model or hypothesis. So those stand out to me, and I, I think they're particularly relevant because, as Jack said, the misuse or misunderstanding of p-values, I think, derive a lot from those two, from those two statements that a lot of people who are casual users of statistics, or even sophisticated users, I should say, you know, think that a p-value has something to do with the probability that the null hypothesis is true or false. I've been saying recently you can't interpret a p-value without the context of a prior. For example, a p-value of 0.01 for a new treatment with a different mechanism of action in a disease for which there are no treatments presently available should be interpreted very differently than the same p-value of 0.01 for the fourth drug in a well-known class of drugs with common mechanism of action in a disease state where there have there are or have been many approved treatments. Right? I mean, think of Alzheimer's. If somebody does a clinical trial and goes, I got a p-value of 0.01 in my Alzheimer's trial, I think we would all view that with some skepticism, right? Because our prior is lots of studies have been done that initially showed something and treatments have failed. So you can't just look at a p-value as, as outside of the context of uh, some prior knowledge. And, and, um, and I think we all do this intuitively, but, but we need to be more explicit and you know, hence my interest in, in using Bayesian approaches. I think the other thing about the ASA statement that I really appreciate is it made me get into this whole controversy a lot more deeply. Um, I've read more papers and historical texts and perspectives on this issue and I have a much deeper appreciation for, for the topic of inference or how to make inference, or even more abstractly, the theory of knowledge or epistemology, right? How do we know what we think we know? And I think it also bleeds into this reproducibility crisis and a lot of the junk science issues that, that emerge today. Finally, I'll say, I think it's great that the ASA did this as an organization. Statisticians, or at least individuals, have been publishing papers for decades about statistics, uh, misuse and abuse of p-values, and it's been going on for a long, long time. Um, will the ASA statement um, and efforts as an organization help? I hope so, uh, but in the special issue of the American Statistician, um, Raymond Hubbard had an article that said some evidence to the contrary, and, and uh, when, when you read that article, you go, wow, we haven't learned any lessons, new lessons over the last seven or eight decades of the use of p-values. I hope the ASA throwing its weight behind it as an organization and professional society changes the tra trajectory of the conversation. But uh, after reading Raymond Hubbard's paper in that special issue, 
I'm a little more skeptical or I realize how long a road it is to change something so deeply ingrained in our scientific culture. Thanks for sharing all those thoughts about it. And and certainly I think having the ASA behind it and, and, and publishing these documents and getting together these special issues, it, it certainly provides a momentum that may not have been there uh, when individual statisticians um, we're doing it on their own. So in that sense, it is good that the, the ASA f- did come together for this um, particular topic. And Lisa, you mentioned that there was a journal that uh, banned p-values, so the Journal of Basic and Applied Social Psychology banned p-values in 2015, and political analysis banned p-values earlier this year, and that may have been the other journal that you were referring to. And in general, do you think these sort of reactive bands of p-values without really uh, having any sort of statistical input on it uh, are, are short-sighted? I do, actually. Um, you know, I my, my talk, my answer a minute ago had to do with whether ASA did the right thing by by getting into this space and, and uh, publishing various uh, statements and articles. Um, I think all along the way, ASA has been careful to acknowledge that p-values are, like many other um, test statistics or, or parameters describing how a test statistic is behaving, an operating characteristic of a trial, whatever, uh, they carry important information. It's not the p-value itself that is issue. It's what people have come to expect of it, so to speak. <laughs> and I think, this is, I think this happens with any uh, science when you've got a concept that's that is not intuitive necessarily, but that gets used so much and talked about so much that people think that they understand it and, um, and in fact, might not be understanding it fully. I, I'll echo what Steve just said. Um, working for six years inside FDA, it was not uncommon to talk to a colleague, not a statistical reviewer, but possibly from another discipline, treating the p-value as, as if it was the probability that the drug worked when the study's over, uh, or one minus the p-value is the probability that the drug works. And, um, you know, that's not technically what one minus the p-value is, <laughs> and that, that you need to be under the alternative hypothesis to talk about whether the drug's working or not or what the probabilities are, um, or you need to switch to Bayesian inference and come at it through another philosophy. But regardless, the p-value has a very specific meaning. It's we all know how it's defined, and, and it, it is assuming things under the null hypothesis. So that's just one example. As Steve said, the other is that people interpret it as the probability that the null hypothesis is true. And when it's a low number, you think the null hypothesis is probably not true. There's a lot of ways that p-values have been used that, that just don't make good sense to us statisticians. Now, one, one way that a p-value is used is to support decision-making. And people will argue, well, what's the difference in a p-value of 0.049 and a p-value of 0.051? But the former is less than 05, so you would call that statistically significant in many cases, and the latter is greater than 05, so you would say it's not statistically significant. Do we really, as quantitative scientists, think there's a fundamental difference between those two uh, values? And you know, I think we all can answer with a common sense fashion, uh, in, in common sense that no, they're not fundamentally different. But if you have set up a decision algorithm and the decision is based on a cut point like 05, then they are different. And so the context here 
is incredibly important. I think that, that there are many better ways to summarize the evidence that a trial gives you than just the dichotomy of below or above 05, saying experiment statistically significant, this one's the finding from this one is not. I think there's much more, of course, the point estimate, the measure of uncertainty about that estimate, in, in this case, treatment effect. But if someone has set up a decision algorithm that uses a dichotomy, then you know you have to you have to honor that um, and and see whether it makes sense at a at a particular setting. Now I did spend some years of my life at FDA, and FDA, as you know, has set quite a strong precedent for deciding if a trial provides substantial evidence using that cut point of, in fact, uh, a p-value less than 0.25 in a one-sided test. That is the standard, and it's been applied over and over again. Changing that to saying tomorrow we're going to change, we're going to stop that precedent, has all kinds of ramifications in terms of precedent setting, in terms of the drugs already on the market with that criteria, and now how are you going to switch for the future drugs in the same indication that want to get on the market. There's a whole lot of, of discussion and I don't believe the FDA will stop using p-values in the way they have been uh, for a long time. But that being said, the discussion about uh, the other information that's important is, is something that the FDA has always uh, looked seriously on. And in fact, labeling of drugs includes estimates of treatment effects. So the FDA has always been focused on point estimates and measures of uncertainty in the labeling of the drugs. But the evidence test, so to speak, is based on that dichotomy. And that might change one day in the future. It, you know, that's not for me to say, obviously, but it, it couldn't be changed quickly because there's been just too much precedent setting. I think, I think the, the dialogue about other, other alternatives to p-values, other ways of thinking, and I'll use the Bayesian statistics as the example, the, the dialogue happening has made it possible for uh, organizations like FDA who perhaps previously didn't think too much about how Bayesian uh, statistics could help provide substantial evidence. That, that thinking is now happening, and it has been happening for, a couple, for several years. Uh, and you'll see this in the agency when they, uh, if you look at the adaptive design guidance that was published uh, in 2018, something I worked on when I was there. Uh, there is uh, acknowledgement that there are uh, Bayesian trial designs that the agency will encounter in their review, and they're certainly open to considering those. There are some particular areas like pediatric trials where Bayesian methods have been embraced at not just the FDA, but internationally through the, IC, the International Council on Harmonization work in their E11 guidance uh, with talking about extrapolation from adult to pediatric studies. So, you know, I think all of this discussion is all a good, it's all good. There's a, it's a win-win, right? <laughs> there, there's a lot of aspects you have to think about. There's a lot of context that you have to be aware of. And you can't say tomorrow nobody's going to dichotomize the p-value. That's not going to happen. But I think there is an increased awareness, thanks to the ASA's work here, in alternatives to p-values, other ways to possibly have more, more of a feeling that the evidence is strong or not strong than a simple dichotomy. And I think that's, I think that's good for statistics and good for science. You know, if I might add to that, I think the dilemma that I see in in these debates and discussions and sometimes misunderstandings is this notion that Lisa touched on that evidence is continuous, but decision-making is dichotomous. And 
evidence is kind of maybe represented by the p value, and 0.051 is really very, very little different than 0.059. But at some point, you have to make a decision. Um, and the answer is yes or no. We believe this or we don't believe this. This is approved or it's not approved. And um, and I think that's where uh, that's what creates some of the consternation in, uh, in in some of the debates that goes on. As far as the journals that have banned the p-values, we all make inferences from data, right? We can't help it. If you read a paper and somebody does an experiment and presents their data you are going to make some sort of inference from that. And I just think there should be some formalism in doing so, some measuring stick or some conclusion, preferably probabilistic, as to what we now believe based on the results of that experiment. And I think it's short-sighted, maybe even ludicrous, to think that banning p-values is the answer to stopping inappropriate inference. So that's kind of my view on where those journals are and, and um, um, why I think it's, it's very short-sighted. Yeah, I agree. As much as I agree with the ASA statement on p-values, banning the p-value altogether is uh, overreacted and it, it's short-sighted. P-value is still a legitimate statistic, so when it's used uh, and interpreted properly, it has its value. However, it's not the only measure for statistical inference. And I, I, I agree with um, uh, both uh, Steve and, and Lisa that uh, we should look beyond the hypothesis testing. Okay? P-value is a measure of evidence in the setting of the non-significant hypothesis testing. You know, by itself, it's very limited. The, again, you know, we all know that uh, uh, rejecting the non-hypothesis doesn't mean that we accept the alternative hypothesis or even prove the non-alternative hypothesis. And uh, the, the hypothesis testing itself is a useful framework but I think we need to look beyond this, and especially in evaluating the treatment effect, then the more um, attention we should put is in the area of estimation, you know, both the, the, the point estimation and interval estimation. And uh, really that, um, uh, uh, you know, even though the both Bayesian and frequentist approaches provide um, ways of uh, doing estimation, uh, but in both hypothesis testing and estimation, uh, Bayesian approach allow us to address the question directly, and while the frequentist approach uh, addresses this uh, question indirectly. So let me just stop here, and uh, we can have further discussion later. Thanks for those thoughts. And in her June President's Corner, ASA President Karen Kafedar talked about this particular journal uh, and mentioned that in a, an American statistician supplement, Ronald Ficker and some of his colleagues looked at some of the articles from uh, basic and applied social psychology uh, one year after the ban and found multiple instances where authors were overstating conclusions uh, beyond what the data would be able to support if uh, statistical significance could be considered. So I think many of you mentioned that not having any sort of um, guide stick to really understand the data, um, you know, is kind of dangerous. Uh, and you're right, we do sort of do this inference in our head whether or not the p-values are going to be there. So having some sort of measures uh, would be helpful. Um, so if you haven't checked out that uh, June President's Corner in the Amstat News, uh, I recommend you do so. And we, we've been talking about p-values and 
one can think that uh, maybe p-values are, are bearing the sole responsibility for general failures of reproducible research. So many things can contribute to this problem. Uh, for example, uh, not considering uh, adjustment for multiple comparisons, uh, issues with publication bias and uh, only publishing successes, uh, failure un or unwillingness to specify clinically meaningful treatment effects that are of interest, uh, using methods where parametric assumptions don't hold or sample size is too small, general lack of consistency between secondary endpoints, and also just the over-underpowering of, of different comparisons uh, in our trials. So I guess the question is, um, with all of these other issues that we're not really addressing, uh, is this uh, sort of low-hanging fruit, and are we picking on p-values because it's easy to do so? So, so I think about some of these issues. I mean, I think about the the issues about lack of reproducibility of research, or you know, some of the junk science and all that. Um, I've kind of thought of it and lumped it into two main categories of issues. One is financial. Um, under that umbrella comes anything from promotions, you know, amongst academics or even industry people. Could be product approvals by getting significant findings. You can get your products approved or uh, or, or your company can get bought out by some bigger company. You know, publications and then all the ensuing grants that come from from various organizations that fund your, you know, an individual's research. And, you know, I think all those financial things, they come in a, a variety of different flavors, but, you know, as they say, you know, kind of follow the money and you'll understand what the incentives are. And I think there's a huge amount of incentives for publishing significant findings. Um, they fall under that financial realm. And I think because of this desire for significant findings, then then we abuse inference in general, study design and inference. And Richard, you mentioned, you know, anything from small sample size um, to biases and how experiments are set up or interpreted or cherry picking results or not confessing to all the multiplicity that you've done. I think all those things fall under kind of the you know, statistical design and analysis and interpretation of studies. And so I think this fundamental misunderstanding of p-values uh, is just kind of a manifestation of, you know, kind of fame and glory and success and how that can lead to, you know, prestige, financial advancement, et cetera, et cetera, um, in, this, in the world of science and as we try to sort this all out. Uh, in terms of reproducible research or junk science or whatever. So p-values, I think, are at the center of it, but you're absolutely, or at least in the mix of it, I should say, in a, in a very central way. But, um, yeah, there are a lot of other dimensions to this problem about scientific inference. And I think statistical inference is, is one of the key issues, but it's not the only one. Yeah, I agree. So, um, Richard, you already alluded to many different reason or causes of uh, failure of reproducible research, and uh, indeed that p-value is in the mix. But uh, I think we should be more careful, and uh, uh, there are already um, many useful methods for correct and control multiplicity issues, uh, for example, using various multiple comparison adjustment methods and the use of the false discovery rate, etc. But I want to point out another issue to help enhance the standard of reproducible research, which is um, the in the area of posting 
de-identified data and the analysis code uh, and all the programs to, uh, that analysis is based on. I think this is very important that uh, in order to uh, reproduce the other people's result, you know, we need to have the data and we need to have the code. The use of the markdown language, like R markdown, which embedded the analysis code in the document that of the write-up together is a very useful way to enhance reproducibility. I think this uh, markdown language type uh, of approach that combine the analysis code and the document write-up uh, is a very uh, important way uh, for enhanced reproducibility, and it should be used more widely. I did note Karen Cathedar's presidential corner and thought it was excellent. And I agree wholeheartedly with what Steve and Jack have already said. And the importance of research is, is, is it can't be understated, and it also can't all the crisis can't all be blamed on the poor little p value. <laughs> um, and I'll also say because I brought in the decision making at FDA already, I think those of us working in the pharmaceutical sector and working with FDA and or working on uh, medical research for NIH or other funding organizations um, that that know that know what clinical trials are all about and have a rich history of how to do things right. They're, we're all, you know, very well aware of the issues of multiplicity and, and know, know that we have to protect against uh, inflated uh, type 1 error rates uh, due to multiplicity in clinical trials. And, for FDA trials, the, the easy way to do that is to pre-specify your endpoints and your methods and so forth so that it's pretty much impossible to go on a fishing expedition at the end of the study and only declare the results that look good as your important results. Journals don't have that luxury, and that's why I think the problems show themselves or manifest themselves in journals because you can't necessarily know what was pre-specified. I mean, you can. You can ask for an analysis plan or whatever, but some journals don't, are not in the practice of doing that. So I think that there are parts of, of science that have protected themselves against some of the misuse of, of p-values, uh, but others haven't. And, and I remember thinking when I was at FDA, well, does this p-value statement in 2016 really, is that really something we need to worry about? Because surely our pre-specification requirements are uh, are sufficient to protect us. But then, of course, all you have to do is think about missing data or think about censoring data because of rescue meds or think about pretty much anything you might want to do based on an event that happens after randomization and all of that protection can pretty, can go away right in front of your eyes, right? That's the topic of ICHE9R1, the revision to that, that great guidance on statistical principles that I believe Steve Ruberg was one of the primary authors for back in the 90s. You know, I think we can get, I, I remember thinking that I, I felt a little smug in 2016, like, oh, we're okay, we know what to do with values. But then, you know, quickly changing my mind and saying, no, really nobody's protected from the misuse, we just have to be cognizant. And, I, and so I think that's important. I think multiplicity control, I think re-specification, uh, a, lot of these, a lot of these methods are around to protect you against the misuse of p-values in the way that, that I think caused the journal that we've mentioned to stop even wanting to publish them. But we do meta-analyses. We use real-world data. A lot of these, these other types of non-clinical trial sources of evidence for decision-making 
can't really be pre-specified because studies are over, results are in, and so you have to go to great lengths to try and not be persuaded by the results you've already seen when you're specifying your analysis. So, so that's yet another place where, where our tried and true protections are not going to work. Anyway, that was a long-winded response to just second that reproducibility is a big problem. There's sources other than p-value we need to work on. But in the meantime, we do need to think of ways we can protect from having p-values uh, overused or misinterpreted. You know, one thing I'll just add quickly to this is uh, a paper I'm trying to get published. We'll see what happens. But I'm advocating that part of the pre-specification in your statistical analysis plan is to describe the prior that you have for a hypothesis, your null hypothesis being false, and to, to state that up front. Uh, and before you think, wow, that's a really hard thing to do, every scientific paper I've ever read has some sort of introduction or background or motivation for why they did the experiment that they're publishing. And from that, there ought to be at least some notion, some way to quantify what people's belief into the, is into the hypothesis that they're testing. I think pre-specifying that would go a long way toward maybe formalizing some more Bayesian inferences, or even if you're going to rely on a p-value, you know, look at the notion of, gee, the prior was really quite small when you started this, and a significant finding should be taken with a grain of salt. I'll just relate one quick example. I hear it every day. On the BBC News feed this morning, somebody found that the use of fluoride by pregnant women reduced the IQ in male children that were born of these women by two points. And I'm like, really? What was the prior belief that that's what would come out of this study, and should I believe anything about a p-value less than 0.05 for such an association? So anyway, I guess I would advocate part of pre-specification is not only all your statistical methods and design and randomization, but quantify in some way your prior belief in the hypothesis you're testing. Yeah, your article uh, in the American Statistician makes the case uh, for greater use of Bayesian methods in medical product development. Can you briefly go over the benefits of the Bayesian paradigm and, and how they can help us in this setting? I think there are many advantages of Bayesian method. Let me just list a few. First of all, uh, Bayesian method provide a consistent probability-based model for statistical inference to address the question of interest directly. For example, when we test a new drug, we want to know what's the probability that the new drug has a response rate of 30% or, or higher, okay. and uh, what is the probability that the non-hypothesis that uh, the new drug, you know, the, if the response rate uh, is uh, less than or equal to 30%, and uh, what's the probability of the non-hypothesis is true. So Bayesian method allow us to address uh, this question directly by providing a probability uh, inference, probability-based inference. And it also can model unknown parameters with statistical distributions. Whatever we don't know, uh, that has a distribution. So this is uh, the opposite of the frequentist approach, assuming that parameter is fixed but data is random. Uh, under the Bayesian approach, we assume data since it's observed, so it's fixed. So given the data, and uh, we want to make inference of the unknown parameter which has a distribution. And also Bayesian method allow us to properly address uh, various levels of uncertainties. Uh, 
and uh, uh, it can incorporate all information like prior information, current information, even the future projection uh, into uh, consideration. And it conforms to the likelihood principle which stated that uh, the, the uh, probability is only based on the observed data and not the unobserved data. And lastly, I think Bayesian approach uh, is very flexible and very useful in terms of incorporating uh, subjective utility in decision making. So I think there are indeed many advantages using the uh, Bayesian under the Bayesian paradigm. Uh, but you know there are some uh, cautions. For example, we need to make sure that data and model are compatible, and uh, we need to. Uh, really do a good job in terms of prior specification and do some sensitivity analysis, uh, make sure that the inference is robust. Yeah, I think the compatibility of the approach in very non-technical terms is uh, it matches the phases of clinical development. Data accumulates through a series of clinical trials in, in most circumstances, in the vast majority of circumstances that's the case. and there should be a way to synthesize that information in a formal way. Um, and I think the Bayesian methodology allows for that, from moving from phase one to phase two to phase three. And uh, I think not only in the efficacy realm, but in the safety realm, we should take safety signals that you see in small trials in phase two and understand, you know, that gives us some sort of prior basis for what we might see in phase three. And, if we see only one of these events in phase three, it still might turn out to be really important or, you know, from a Bayesian probability perspective, um, necessary to address rather than thinking about a phase three trial just in and of itself. You know, we had this one event or here's what the efficacy looks like in this one trial. So I just think it's a very natural way, very natural way of doing clinical drug development is to do you know, start small and do more and larger trials and more diverse trials, et cetera. And I think the Bayesian approach allows you to naturally accumulate data in a way to come to a final conclusion about does the drug work or not, or is the drug safe and effective? So I just think the two kind of go hand in hand. Just chime in. I, I agree with Steve, and I um, had some experience, you know, almost 20 years ago now in, a, in the pharmaceutical sector. And the use of Bayesian methods to update our, you know, what we knew about molecules that we were trying to make a decision to develop or not develop uh, was just invaluable. I mean, it, it was so intuitive to to update your, your current thinking uh, or update your prior every time a study finished and look at the whole cost-benefit analysis in a, in a Bayesian way for continuing with the molecule in development. When I got to the FDA, I got a new appreciation of how FDA might apply Bayesian methods in their regulation and evaluation of evidence. And I know one, one concern, I, I talked earlier in this hour about the precedent of, of a p-value less than or greater than the cut point that FDA has relied on, the one-sided 0.025 criterion. And you know, one of the advantages of a criterion, even though it may feel arbitrary at times, is that it's not up for discussion, that every sponsor has the expectation. They come in and talk to the agency. They know what the criteria are. The criterion itself is not up for discussion. 
that's been criticized quite heavily. Some people feel that the criterion should be relaxed if there's no treatment for a particular disease and it's particularly morbid or, or mortal uh, or fatal. And it should be tighter if there are 12 drugs or, you know, a lot of drugs already on the market for the disease or if it's a lifestyle drug or, you know, so forth and so on. There's been a lot of literature about why we should have a sliding scale for the criterion for p-values, uh, providing substantial evidence from studies. And the, the problem is that the agency has, I mean, they have a lot of reviewers, but they have lots and lots of submissions to review. So the resources are always tight. And even with the, the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, which is in its sixth uh, enactment, providing additional um, FTEs for reviewer resources to make sure the timelines are met for reviews of NDAs, the, the drug development programs themselves are becoming more complex with precision medicine approaches and more modeling and so forth, and it takes more reviewer resources to to review applications probably than it did 10 or 20 years ago on a per application basis. So if you threw in the mix a discussion for each application of the appropriate criterion or some discussion about how to weight the prior information from a previous study to test whether the posterior probability meets a criterion that's to be determined, sets off some red flags, I think, in terms of resource requirements. How could, how could the agency operationalize an environment where so much was negotiated for each and every application. It works well to have the T less than 025 uh, criterion because that's one thing you don't have to negotiate. You have to, you still have to talk about the study design and whether you need one or two studies and you know who should be in the study population and are these the right outcomes for to base approval on. There's a lot of things that still have to be discussed, but that criterion is off the table. So I think I think it's it's a, it's a hard question, right? I think even the people that believe that incorporating Bayesian prior information is a natural as you learn about drugs and update them, how do you how do you take advantage of that approach but still have something that can be operationalized uh, with fixed level of resources? Mm -hmm. I, I think that's something that still needs to be discussed. I don't know, Steve and Jackie might have ideas. And, and I guess the, the, the other question is, if you did just come up with another criterion that you assumed all the time, say the posterior probability has to be greater than 97.5 to provide substantial evidence, or greater than 95, 0.95, or greater than 0.90, whatever the criterion is, if you come up with a criterion that you always use, then are you any better off than when you were using P less than 025? So, so those are, I, I think those are questions to see a full embrace of these methods by organizations like um, FDA, you're probably going to take some, some serious thought along those lines. That's just my opinion, of course. Mm -hmm. So your article states that the, the frequentist paradigm has served a very useful role in bringing rigor to the evalu evaluation of experimental treatments, and that Bayesian approaches offer the next generation of inferential thinking for decision-making. Now, for the three of you, do you, do you foresee a frequentist-free future in medical product development, or, or will p-values always have a role? And I think based on some of your responses, Lisa, you think at least in the short term that p-values uh, will have a role uh, in the near future. Uh, I agree that uh, you know p-values still has its role, but again, we need to expand uh, the approach from just a non-significant hypothesis testing based on p-value you know, to more kind of broader approach, including estimation and, uh, and uh, 
using the Bayesian method. And using the best Bayesian method to design clinical trials, one can still calibrate the design parameter such that they have desirable frequencies property, like controlling type 1 error rate and have a sufficient power. You know, these are all good things that we should not abandon altogether. And uh, um, in order to do that, let me just point out that uh, at MD Anderson, one of our passion is to develop software. You know, these are freely available for education and for uh, dissemination of information. So let me just uh, say that the URL is very simple. You know, if you can uh, go to a look at trialdesign.org, and uh, there are many softwares that freely available can help us uh, to learn about Bayesian method and uh, implement many of the Bayesian adaptive designs uh, by calibrating parameters such that the design has uh, desirable frequencies properties. So again, you know, I'm not seeing uh, Bayesian and frequencies, you know, they are totally against each other. You know, we should look at these are complementary to each other, and we should take the best of the both worlds to move forward. Yeah, I think in summary, uh, uh, I think p-values are going to be with us, not only in the short term, but in the long term, and I think appropriately so. You can think of the p-value as the ultimate test statistic to summarize the evidence within a current trial based on the assumptions of a model, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, you take all the data, you run it through a model and use a statistical distribution or whatever to produce a single number, a p-value. And I think there probably is some value. There's, no, I don't think there is value in quantifying that level of evidence within the trial. I just think it has to be used and interpreted in the context of other prior information or just the context of the research that's being done. So I think it is going to be with us well into the future and appropriately so. Um, I just hope that we can move away from it being almost the sole determinant and dichotomous yes or no answering mechanism uh, for whether a scientific finding is real or not. So that's my thoughts. Lisa, any finer thoughts? No, I think that Jack and Steve stated everything just perfectly. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much to the three of you for sharing your time today to talk about p-values and look forward to see how medical product development uh, will change with respect to p-values in the near future. Best of luck to all of you. Thank, Thank you. you Thank you, Richard. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Richard. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, episode 71 on p-values and their use in medical product development. Before we sign off, I want to highlight the proposals for the 2020 Regulatory Industry Statistics Workshop are now being accepted through December 17th. The 2020 workshop takes place September 23rd through the 25th at its new home at the Bethesda North Marriott Hotel and Conference Center. Finally, if you have an idea for a podcast or have a question, please send me an email at rzinc at targetpharmasolutions.com. That's R-Z-I-N-K at targetpharmasolutions.com. Until next time.